You're listening to the Startup Finance Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, a show entirely focused on helping you to build a financially fit and fundable business. On this show, we connect you with finance aficionados to impart their expertise to help your business grow. The Startup Finance Podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community and voice for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs. Make your way over to startupcan.ca forward slash podcast to subscribe to this Startup Finance Podcast through iTunes and Google Play Music. This podcast is presented in partnership with MasterCard, a technology company in the global payments industry. MasterCard's global payments processing network connects consumers, financial institutions, merchants, governments in more than 210 countries and territories. MasterCard products and solutions make everyday commerce activities such as shopping, traveling, running a business, and even managing your finances easier, more secure, and more efficient. I am your host, Dr. Sean Wise, Professor of Entrepreneurship at Ryerson University. I bring more than 19 years experience in seed investing, including five seasons spent supporting CBC's Dragon's Den. I've published dozens of articles for Profit, Inc., and even Canadian Business, as well as several best-selling books on venture capital, entrepreneurship, and pitching ideas. Want to connect with me after this podcast? Join me at 100stepstostartup.com. We're thrilled to have Nicole Verkent as our guest on the show today. Nicole is a serial entrepreneur and a dragon on CBC's Next Gen Den. She's the CEO and founder of OMX, a tech company that supports businesses to be more efficient, reduce costs, and reap the highest economic benefit from government procurement contracts. Nicole became an entrepreneur at the very young age of 23, where she started her first manufacturing business selling to government. She currently sits on the board of directors for the Canadian Commercial Corporation and for the publicly traded Crypto Global. She has a reputation for being a tenacious problem solver, and she's a true paragon for her generation. In today's podcast, we'll talk to Nicole about her role as a founder and as an investor on CBC's Next Gen Den. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. It's absolutely my pleasure. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, but let's start with what you want. What learnings do you want our listeners to take away from our conversation today? Oh boy. Um, well, I think, I think Sean, that you've spoken about it too, um, in some of your materials that unfortunately, I think the reality of both founding companies and being an entrepreneur and investing in companies is extremely messy. And I think that a lot of people, especially in this day and age, they really want instant results. And the biggest theme of what I find when I talk to all of these different entrepreneurs um, and as I look back on my own journey is that um, it really is a long process. It really is um, the, the guts of what you're doing can be a very boring process and unglamorous. Um and, you know, most of your time is spent with the, the cameras and the lights off and sort of just grinding away. And um, it's messy in that failure is a really important ingredient in the process. So I think um, it's really important. Organizations like Startup Canada are doing such a great job of really shining the light on the reality of what this process looks like. But I think it's great to be having conversations like this uh, about what that process really looks like and what the sort of real secrets to success um that we've kind of isolated through that process. 
I couldn't agree more. And you know what? Embracing failure, failing faster, learning from your failures. I just don't think people embrace that when they're first time founders. I, I think they often get stuck that anything that's not 100% positive will take away from it. And in fact, most failures fail in small ways every day, every week, learn from it and grow. What's your experience with failure? Just because people look at you and see you as such a huge success. And although I've never asked you, I would imagine you haven't been a huge success in every single thing you've ever no, done. No, no, there's been so, so many um, failures along the way. But, you know, each time you do, you realize, okay, this is teaching me something. So you have to be humble and ask yourself, why is it not working? Or have the guts to just pick up the phone, sit across the table from the potential target market or customer and say, how can we change this to make this solve the real problem? Or, you know, now that we've solved the problem, how can we make it so that you'll pay for it? Or what will you pay for this? And so that's the part where the conversations are hard, but you know, you're failing and changing and failing and changing and failing and changing. And you're going through that process and there are so many people involved. I, I blame Hollywood. I completely blame Hollywood for sort of fictionalizing this eureka moment, aha moment. I've had this idea and boom, you know, you know, people came about, we started this company, we grew this company and then we exited. And so, and we live in a very impatient society, right? I mean, I thought I was impatient, but you see people coming out of school now, 10, 15 years younger, and they're even more impatient. And then Hollywood and all these things that I think are really accelerating this this idea that you have an aha moment and you become Snapchat in, you know, in six months, but it's, it's, um, a lot of failures, meaning you're getting it wrong. It's a lot of iteration, meaning you're making changes. And then there's a lot of collaboration, meaning there's just so many people who collaborate in the process. And a lot of entrepreneurs start and they say, I have an idea. I don't want to tell you it though. Great. That's going to go really far. I mean, you, to me, you have an idea, you tell everyone, you ask for tons of feedback, you have those hard conversations, and then you figure out where the failure points are, and then you make changes quickly, and then you repeat. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I'm always amazed that in the 21st century, where collaboration has far outdone secrecy, where we have all of this evidence that it's not the idea, it's the execution. Mm -hmm. We know now that by going to customers earlier, you fail faster and don't lose five or $10 million in two or three years. I'm amazed because so much has happened since the dot-com boom. We've had multiple generations of startups through the Web 2.0 movement and the current age of unicorns. Do you see it easier today to start a company than way back when you first turned your mind to starting one? Well, it feels easier, but it probably would feel easier for myself because I've been through so much. And so I think it's important for entrepreneurs to get those battle scars as quickly as they can, because it, it always gets easier. Um, somebody told me 10 years ago, the air gets thinner, the higher you go up. And it's true. That's right? brilliant. Like as you start to grow and learn, and, and then it starts to you know, if you're doing it right, and, and this is why technology is so exciting, is you can start to scale and accelerate, you know, rapidly and it gets easier. Um, do I think it is easier to start a company? I, I do. I think there's a lot more resources. It's a lot cheaper to start a company. Um, technology begets more technology. And so, you know, you can just take your retail shop and put it online and use Shopify and you're just paying a percentage. And so there's ways now to access the market, the global market in much cheaper avenues. And there's so much information out there if you're looking for it. And I just remember 10 years ago, it wasn't 
as cool and sexy as it was, as it feels like it is now to do. No, entrepreneurs are the new rock stars. Yeah. Entrepreneurs are the new black, right? Everybody wants to talk about it. And I think that's good because it inspires a, a generation to, to think about it. I know Dragon's Den has a huge following in the 18 to 24 uh, demographic. But is there, a, is there a negative to all of this? I mean, The Apprentice isn't HR, right? Survivor isn't how yeah. you live on an island, right? Those aren't real things. Right. People forget there's a right. camera person on the island. People forget that it's made for television. And you and I, having spent time in the den, know there's editing involved. <laughs> That's not the real world. Do you think there's a negative to sort of everyone thinking entrepreneurship is is the new cool? That's a great point. I think, I think that you step off the edge because you you see some of the outcomes and then you get slammed in the head with reality. And if you haven't been told, if you haven't listened to the start of Canada podcast, that the reality, <laughs> Thank right? You for I the mean, plug. all hinging on that, listening to our podcast. Um, if you, then you're not, you're not hit with this reality, this dose of reality of, you know, what it's really like. Um, I'm a huge proponent. When I went through university, I went through the Ivy program and everyone was going into management consulting and investment banking. And it was very uncool to be an entrepreneurship. And I really do credit, you know, my ability to go into entrepreneurship with watching my parents be entrepreneurs and sort of getting that breakfast table education of them not being able to make payroll and, and fighting over, you know, some HR problem and trying to make a deal happen before the fiscal year end and, you know, all those realities. And I sort of lived through it. And, and I've actually, I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly, but like we lived in a trailer for a few years when I was quite young. I thought it was cool and fun because it was small and, um, you know, but we went, I went through yeah. the hard parts. And so I think I, I credit my, my comfort with it by growing up in it. And so I think the more we can educate people at a high school level about the realities of personal finance and the realities of, you know, cash flows and those types of things, you know, why, why are we having two requirements of biology courses to graduate high school? Like add something about entrepreneurship or running a small business or, you know, financial literacy. How do you calculate a mortgage? How do you, you know, all those kind of things. So I think it's really important. We talk about the yucky stuff. Well, I don't want to focus on the yucky stuff, but I do want to talk about some of your experiences. I mean, you founded and run multiple companies. You've oversaw the sale of GMA to a private equity firm. When it comes to negotiation, uh, what's your philosophy? How do you know it's the right time to start this sale, to start this deal? And how do you approach it from a top level mm. down? I don't think you ever really know. Um Sometimes there's some external factors. In the case of GMA, um, that company was selling primarily to the U.S. government, and the U.S. government had made a change in their policy and required the goods to be made um, outside of uh, Canada, and I was offshoring stuff to other countries. So we were forced by an externality, and we were we had high customer concentration. So um, that was a bit of a unique situation, and we could use the deadline that was imposed to us by the government as we need to get this deal closed by this this date. And so that was a bit of a unique situation. Um, I think with startups, you, you kind of want to sell, they call it at the knee, right? When things are good, but you can still show there's a lot of market growth and that sort of thing. So hold on a second. Hold on a second, Nicole. Not everyone is as knowledgeable as you. I know what you just said, but let's slow it down for our audience. What does that mean at the knee? Well, it's like, you know, if you, you're going up, 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 and you kind of have this upwards curve and you're not sure if you can get it to the next stage, but um, 
you're still, it's, it's like, I guess it's the knee of a leg. Like it's like a bump that's going up at your... You're talking about inflection yeah, points. You're talking about the moment where a boost of capital uh, would allow you to increase capacity or allow you to buy capital assets. You're talking about you have to find the right moment at the right time. And you're suggesting that that moment is at the knee or the point, the inflection point where you can start to see it. It's not really a curve. It's more like a bunch of plateaus. It could be that moment. It could be, you know, I'm a big believer if the founder is a big part of the company, if the founder is starting to lose interest or, um, you know, I've had a friend that, you know, wanted to get pregnant and she said, this is the time I'm going to sell my company. And it was, it was a good time financially as well, but there could be personal reasons where the founder might say, you know, it's time for me to take a back seat. And that could be one option. Or there's a few other options. Um, you know, it, I think you really have to pay attention to the market um, and what's happening in the external. I think you really need to pay attention to that because, um, I've had friends sell their companies maybe a little too early, but it was the exact time where the target companies were looking to add this particular thing to their portfolio because they were starting to feel insecure about themselves, not having it. So I think it's all about if that's your goal, if it's to exit that, you know, I think other goals are good too, to try to grow a really big company or, um, but if that's your goal, I think it's it's a lot of it's about the market conditions and and what those companies are saying and just keeping keeping a feel out of what's going on there. But being able to show there's still more growth left to your company is, in my opinion, how you drive you know good multiples. Now you mentioned that some of your friends may have sold their companies in your mind uh, a little early, and Canadians are typically lumped in a category of people who do that, who sell out too early. They sell when it's a $50 million company, not hold on to make it a $5 billion. And in particular, you know, it's not the IPO exit that happens. It's the M&A to a big U.S. partner. Do you have any sense, because you run in those circles, why is that happening time and time again? Why do the Canadians uh, hit doubles and singles, but not hold on for the grand slam? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think it's the founder that's put through this tenure grind and they want to see, liquidity. They, you know, it's, you kind of look at the incentives they are looking for liquidity. I think if you want to get the home runs, that's where you can use private equity where founders can take some chips off the table, but then still bring capital into their companies and, and try to grow it as big as they can. Um, but still you bring private equity in and they want to be out in a five, seven year time frame. So you're yeah, people don't realize that funds have their own investors, mm -hmm. limited partners, and they have a time right. schedule. So now you're adding a time frame, but then it could lead to something else. Um, yeah. So why? So you're saying why is it? I think the root of the Canadian, um, we'll call it a psyche, is it's cultural. I think that we've traditionally been a little less aggressive than our, our you know, American friends to the south. That's a good part of our culture, but it also is reflecting in the way we think about startups. I think we don't see as big of a market as maybe Americans do. They have a, an economy that's 10 times bigger than ours. Um, I think it just comes down to culture. I think you know, you've been struggling for a certain period of time and somebody approaches you and they said, you know, I'll offer you this and you do the math and you know what you're going to get out of it. And, you know, it's exciting and tempting. Or maybe you think that American partner can take your vision and your mission to a much bigger level on the global scale. I don't think Canadians need to think that because I think Canadian companies are very well positioned to sell all over the world from Canada. I think we have the talent here in our companies that can help translate 
um, you know, culturally, not just language, but to be able to sell all around the world. And I think we are well positioned. We have trade agreements all around the world with other countries. So. We actually have trade advisors. The Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade has trade people on the ground that want to help you. The Export Development Company of Canada has policies and procedures to help us go public, go uh, global. Sure. I mean, I don't think that's the answer. I but, don't either. Um, but the point, I think, I think when we say, to answer your question, I think the one word is culture. And um, like the reason why we're selling out earlier. Um, but I think that culture could be our biggest advantage as well. No, I think that's really interesting. I spent some time in Israel last year and I would say they have the opposite problem. They're only going for the big home run. They don't consider local sales at all. And so I find them the flip side. And there's pros and there's cons to that. I love our country and I love our mm-hmm. culture. Um, now, you've been both an investor and an investee. What surprised you most when you went to the other side of the table? The 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 be, being the money, not the person asking for it. I learned a lot. I mean, you forget that the one on the other side of the table is learning a lot. Um, I I actually learned very quickly how to be much better at pitching, how to be um, how to be on the other side of the table. I think it's so helpful if you're negotiating or you're trying to do something to really picture yourself in the other seat because then you understand what they're looking for, or what they don't want to hear or want to hear. So. Um, the old Dale Carnegie, put yourself in the other person's place and see it. I like that. I've never that. read his books, but um, I learned so much. The number one thing I learned, which isn't talked about enough, is if you're a private angel investor, I know you are too, Sean, it's, they're sitting there thinking, how am I going to get my capital returned to me first? And then how does this company deliver um, a return. And if, you know, if you're an early stage startup with this great idea, with this huge market and you're raising at a $5 million valuation, but you don't have a product or revenue, you know, the investor's going, okay, let me do this math. This company needs to be, you know, $20 million valuation by the time it hits this for me to be able to. So it's, to me, it's about, um, that math that I don't think entrepreneurs do enough for their investors, you know, this is how we're going to get to this stage. And, but I mean, the other flip side is when you're in an early stage, you don't really know. And, um, you know, it's really about investing in the jockey, not necessarily the horse. Like you said, it's about execution and can that founder really do the execution and the idea might will probably morph and change so much. So a lot of it is about the founder, but I think the other piece, um, actually Michael Hyatt taught me a lot about this is like, what is that math that gets the capital back to that investor or gets them a return? What has to happen or what, how does the growth happen? Do you think that, that that's what people are missing out when they come from the dragons? They're, they're often thinking about how it helps them, but they never put themselves in the shoes of the investor and understand that they have a return to make. They have to, to have partners to sign off on deals or do you think there's something else? I don't know if that's exactly what they're missing out. Um, but I, I definitely saw that on the investor side. It's like, and Kevin O'Leary was, was really good at pushing that point, right? Like walk me, take, take my money on a journey, right? Like walk me through. Oh, yeah. Walk my dead soldiers. How do they come back to me? I remember that very well. Right? I used to play with the money and make people think about it that way. Okay. Let's try this differently though. But what's a common question or, or even questions that you ask entrepreneurs that they struggle with that you wish every entrepreneur knew? For me, it's all about unit economics. 
I, I wish entrepreneurs understood at the heart of their business is a value proposition and, and that has to scale. But what about you? What, what, what kind of common questions do you get frustrated that entrepreneurs don't prepare well enough for other than the math? Well, for me, it's always about, I, I then, if I'm sitting in the investor's chair, I then put myself in the customer's chair. And, and so it's really about, okay, you've told me this customer has a toothache. Is it a gnawing pain that they will sit with for years? Or does that thing need to be ripped out immediately and they're going to hand over their money? To me, it's about that one-on-one -on -one conversation that I'm hoping the entrepreneurs had with their exact target customer about, I know you have a problem. Does this solve it? And like, does your problem really hurt? Or is it just kind of annoying, but you have way more, you have other things on your mind that are higher priority. To me, there's that nuance there. Like I've heard a lot of good ideas, but I kind of think, yeah, that's a good idea. But my tooth doesn't hurt so bad. I'm not rushing to ER to get it yanked out. I think people forget that status quo is an alternative that your customers can take. They want to talk about why we're better than the competition, but they don't ever think about what if people oh, just live with the problem. And they all and they they usually do. And that's what I've had to learn the hard way with selling into enterprise and big regulated markets is, you know, I knew that I know, I still know today my our solution OMX is so much better than spreadsheets and consultants and the garbage that is being used, but um they will live with the status quo painfully and not do as great of a job because, you know, maybe they're not getting fired over not changing. And so, um, and so I think that's a very critical piece of your thinking when you think about a startup. So are you a vitamin, you know, a nice to have, or are you an aspirin uh, need to have? I think you're talking about elasticity of demand and, and, is it, and, and how the problem is. Okay. So that's really important. So let's step back. When you look at all the deals done and not done in the next gen den, uh, what do you think makes a, an angel or a, or a venture capitalist invest in one company over another? I mean, people forget that you're seeing literally hundreds of these companies. Every company in Next Gen Den, and I'm also on a Gimlet Media podcast called The Pitch, which is similar. It's early stage companies. Um, it's it's like I we already talked about. It's really about the founder and the founding team, and whether or not you know you're estimating whether or not they can pull it off. So let's talk about that for a second, Nicole. So you're looking at the founding team, you're, you're sizing them up and, and number one, you're saying, can they actually execute? Okay, tell me number two, number three, number four. What else do you look for in teams? Well, it's, do, do they know about this problem? Are they intimate enough that they really have the domain expertise? So um, pretty much all the startups I invested in had a commonality where they were applying some of the trends that were in the market where I would say for sure every market was going to go that way, you know, digitization and networks and those types of things that we can see being applied to every market. And so to me, my, my lens was, are they applying those things that I am pretty confident will happen eventually um, to a domain expertise they have? And then is this person or people, their team, are they really focused on this? Is this what they're doing 100%? And are they telling me things that make me feel comfortable that they're going to be executing? And, you know, you don't really know. I've had some startups you know, secretly they were going and doing other jobs while they were working on their startup and surprise, they failed. Um, I just shut the doors. So it's, to me, it's about get, getting comfortable over that. But I think what people don't really realize, they see, like, you know, Sean, 
there's a pitch and then a dragon says, I'll give you this. And then people think, you know, it just closes the next week. And what really happens in reality is the pitch is the first conversation. And then a lot of investors really want to follow that startup for a certain period of time. I mean, you don't want it to drag on for too long because the startups need the capital, but it's really about, okay, you told me that your next step was you're going to go out and get validation from five different potential customers. You know, do they email you back two weeks later with that validation? Or, you know, in your conversations, you said, I kind of see a hole here. And then do they go out and, and so to me, they, a lot of investors, I, or that's kind of the practice I've taken up is you follow them and you start to work with them. Like you're dating a little bit before you, you get married. Right. I mean, so it's about seeing, is this person consistent? Because I believe that the reality of a startup journey, and I think that these are your words, Sean, it's a journey is that that's what it's about. It's a grind. It's about, I find out, I found out there's a hole here. Now I'm patching it up. I found out there's another hole here. Now I'm patching that up. And, and so I'm, I'm constantly iterating. It's a long journey. So I think in terms of the deals that close, I think it's about what happens after the pitch. Absolutely. Absolutely. If they don't, if they aren't able to execute, if their due diligence is poor, if they've shown what I say in air quotes, entrepreneurial enthusiasm, you know, if, if what they thought were sales or just LOIs or, or requests for information, can you, I, I don't want to put you on the spot and I'm sure all of your investments are like children to you and you love them all equally, but let's illustrate what you just showed me. Tell me about your favorite investment to date. <laughs> well, you are putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, they kind of change. I, I had this formula where, like I already told you, I like people who have the domain expertise in a model that I know is a trend that's happening. And so I made three or four in under that model. And then I randomly made an investment in my friend's company. I've just seen her, watched her. She's had a couple of great you startups one exit, and I put a small amount um, into a company called Sheerly Genius. It's got nothing to do with my expertise. It doesn't fit my lens of what does it do? What does Sheerly Genius do? Sheerly Genius are sheer nylons that don't rip. <laughs> oh my Sean, god, what a great name! Sean, I have been going to meetings for ten years where I have sheer nylons on, and I am running out the door. I have a new puppy. You know, they rip them. You're like. Damn it! I want to kill somebody. This pain is so bad. I hate this. I hate sheer nylon. So you 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 could I invest in it because you were a customer. You 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 so had firsthand pain. And and you don't want to wear tights. I mean, I, I'm sure you can't relate, and that's okay. You don't want to wear tights because they're too thick. How do you know I'm not wearing tights right now? <laughs> well, or sheer I'm stockings you right don't now? Want to wear tights? They look too thick. You wouldn't want to wear opaque tights. They're not attractive. So uh, I, I think I wouldn't be attractive no matter what the tights were. But go dress, on. You want to wear a skirt? The sheer nylon. Free trim, to be you, free you know, to be me. $13 each. Anyways, so this this woman worked for a year with um, bulletproof vest materials and came up with this product. And I mean, she's on fire. And I and I just love the product. And they've done this Kickstarter and it's done great. And I think they're going to be very, very. Please tell me they're not actually testing it with real ammunition. Like, <laughs> it's just it's just the marketing. No, shtick. but they did test it with my real dog. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you know what? Solving your own pain is a, is a great uh, philosophy of a lot of entrepreneurs because it gives them access to early adopters. Yeah. It gives them insight. It gives them domain knowledge, which you've mentioned. But even as an investor, it's a lot easier when you're part of the user demographic. Well, but isn't it ironic, right? I made, I made these investments in companies that were very similar to OMX, but different domain. And the one that's taken off is the nylon company. <laughs> oh, I love it. That is funny. Now, this is the startup finance podcast, so I'm obligated to ask you some CFO finance questions. But I want to start from the entrepreneurial side. A lot of entrepreneurs see keeping track of their finances as something you have to do for taxes, you know, for filings. And I, and I think they're missing it. I find that, that that financial data is your dashboard of your vehicle, if you will, if your venture is a car. It's the speedometer and it's the altimeter and it tells you all these things. What's your relationship from an entrepreneurial perspective with financial literacy, with daily finance updates? How did you use, or still to this day, use finances as a strategic insight? Yeah, no, that's a great question, but you're absolutely right. I mean, especially you're talking to entrepreneurs and, and you say, how's it going? They go, oh, great. This customer told me everything's great. And you kind of want to say, well, what are the KPIs, the key performance indicators? And so I think... Every company should have a couple simple ones and, you know, they're obviously sales related should be, um, should be your top KPIs, but they should be different for each startup. I mean, there's lots of models online where there's examples, but for instance, um, part of OMX, we used to obsess over churn and we still, that's right. Yeah. Because we're a subscription based model, but We've since learned that we should still obsess over churn with our big enterprise deals, and we have virtually zero churn um, there. But on the supply side, all the different suppliers, thousands of suppliers that are responding to procurement opportunities, et cetera, you know, their churn has always been quite high, and it used to keep me up at night. But then, I, then we realized, hey, we're LinkedIn. You know, you sign up for the premium account, and then you get a job, and then you, you drop down until you are looking for the job again. And we started noticing that most of our suppliers that came off came back on three months later when something fit them. And so we said, why we should stop obsessing over this metric because all the, the blogs, the SaaS blogs say this is the most important metric. Our model is a little different. And so I think you should make sure that your KPIs really do reflect what, what your model is and you know what the crux of your business is. So to answer your question directly, um, when I first got started the first couple of years, I think most, I learned all these fancy finance things in university and um, you know knew how to do these huge models and everything, but it's really about cash flow in the beginning. Uh, I think you really have to focus on that. And I think you really need to, to focus on sales and just making sure your sales might not be making you enough money, you might not be enough contribution margin in the beginning, but you, you need to be making sure you're selling stuff and you need to be watching that cash flow like a hawk. Um, but then I think as you evolve, it's more about those KPIs that you know drive the growth in your business. And so it's more about you know ensuring that your salespeople are selling more than what it's costing them and that the marketing dollars are um, have high returns, et cetera. So um, they don't need to be fancy. I think you only need a couple. And I'm a big believer in, um, you know, my CFO, he's, he's fantastic, but, and he has lots of complicated models and I do use them more on a monthly or quarterly basis, but on the more consistent basis, it can just be an email with a few bullets. You know, here's where, where things are at. 
No, I, I think that's great advice. The only thing I would add is, is that some people get sucked into the vanity metrics. They're telling you how many users they have when it, when in fact, it's better to tell us the growth, right? So that you can see a trend, you know, dots don't really help lines help, but let's talk about your CFO. So if you were a CFO of your company or one of our startup listeners, what would keep you up at night? And, and you've already talked a little bit about a cash flow and making sure we don't have too high churn. But, but what do you think that most people are kept up at night over? And more importantly, how do you deal with it? Because sometimes you, you just have to work through it. Yeah, I mean, I think... A lot of the time it is about runway because a lot of startups are about to run out of cash. And so a lot of the time it's about runway. And when, when are you going to runway being defined as how many more months of capital you have in the bank? Sorry, not everyone knows all these terms. I'm glad you defined it, but I'm laughing because the visual of a runway always made me laugh. It's like how long the plane is going down the runway until it. Before it falls into the bushes, before it goes off the track. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Um, And so I think, I think that is sort of your primal survival number that you need to always know, but you kind of get past that stage and, um, you know, you need to know if you're bringing on more users and whether or not those users are leaving or are they staying and how much money they're making you. And so before you scale the business, are you scaling on quicksand or are you scaling on something that is going to continue to generate contribution to your company? So continue to um, have profits that will you know, cover your overheads and, and drive growth and be able to allow you to invest in more growth. So I know that's a bit of a convoluted answer, but um, what- no, I think it makes perfect sense. You're talking about the business model. You're talking about making sure all the pieces are transparent and you can measure them and then focusing on the key but ones. It, I think it's it should, convoluted. It note. should be sales. And like, I'm sorry if this is crass, you can delete it off the podcast if you want, but like, we don't delete anything. Whatever you have to say is just marketing, fine. Marketing, technology, finance, and even my CFO are sales as bitch. Okay. <laughs> like they need to be giving the metrics to help drive more sales and what you've said, which is more growth, which is the real the real goal of driving your startup and scaling. Let's get in our imaginary time machine and let's go forward 10 years to let's say, I don't know, 2028. What would you like to see different in the Canadian entrepreneurial landscape? More Nicole. Yeah, I got that. I like that. I'm all for that. What would you like to see different? So for me, I'd like to see more inclusionary. I'd like to see better numbers of the financing, uh, regardless of gender. That's something to me that, that that's just abhorrent. Sure. Yes. I would like to see, I would like to see some more Elon Musk style ideas coming out of Canada, big ideas, ideas that can change the world that we can have a huge impact on globally. I think we have a great brand around the world. And I think that, You know, I want to see our next Nortel or Blackberry Rim um, where we've taken it's a Canadian product that's got, you know, global domination in something that has a real impact. You know, maybe that's in clean tech or it could be in anything, really. Um, But I also really want to see I kind of hate the word startup. I'm sorry. I know that's the name of your organization you're representing, but I, I want to see technology being inserted into our traditional sectors in a way where you know, the energy sector, oil and gas sector is not a bad sector. It's not a bad word to say that, you know, we're a resource economy, but that we have all this technology in that 
um, sector that's powering and making us more competitive around the world. And same goes for our other major sectors. So that's something that I'm pretty crazy about, that we, it feels like we have an isolated startup technology sector and community. And it's great that that is growing and there's more attention on it. And we're calling entrepreneurs rock stars. That is really good. I think, I feel like that is the precedent that we need, but then the next step to me needs to be, you know, if you were just in Israel, then you probably, it's, it's how do we insert all of these brilliant ideas into these huge companies and sectors where we play a role on the global stage that will brand Canada as using technology and innovation as its competitive advantage in these big sectors where there's a lot of money on the table? Well, I think we'd all benefit from that happening by 2028. So For I think that's a great sure. goal. Now, we're almost out of time, which is a shame because I could talk to you forever, but do you have any final advice you want to leave with our listeners today? Well, I, I, it's been really fun, Sean. Um, I really enjoyed this. I think that, you know, the more there's just so much stuff that I've learned through all these failures. And I think the more that entrepreneurs are listening to these types of podcasts and we're having real conversations and then, you know, stop analyzing and just go out and, and execute and be okay with the, the many failures you will have um, and just tying it back to the very first thing that we said that it's uh, it's a long gruesome process that's that's grueling and and <laughs> totally um, unsexy and almost boring at times and so knowing that I think will be helpful because you won't feel like you're unusual and things aren't working for you. That is the process. And um, it's very fulfilling. And I think that we're doing really important work. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Finance Podcast, a show dedicated to providing entrepreneurs with advice and experiences on startup finance. Want to access more resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca to gain access to support, resources, and events. And be sure while you're there to check out all the other original Startup Canada podcast series on the Startup Canada Podcast Network.